So Susan introduced us to Epiphany from the point of view of church calendar and, a, and from the point of view of a bit of biblical theology. But when we think of the way that we use the word Epiphany without the, you know, the in front of it, the proper noun, the Epiphany, if we just think of the way we use Epiphany, it marks a moment, right, in which something is discovered to be real and true, and, you know, these occasions, if they're an epiphany, they kind of grab hold of us and shake us, right? They, they mark an enlightenment that's so powerful that it reinterprets our past and kind of sets a new direction and a new future for us. It causes us to rethink everything. And so I think from a formational point of view, from a discipleship point of view, uh, epiphany is practiced as a season that reminds us to be intentional about opening our hearts and minds to see God's work in us, that which he's revealed in us, and that which he's doing in the world. Challenge, of course, is that it seems like darkness all around hides God. And this seems very real to us, and this darkness can feel pervasive, actually. It seems some days as if disorder rules and reigns, not the kingdom of God. Somewhere Dallas Dallas Willard has written, thinking about the time before the Epiphany, that the route of education and law, which Plato and Aristotle tried, proved to be ineffectual for human nature, as great, obviously, as those two thinkers were. And for all their advances, the Greeks needed the Romans to stop their murderous culture. And the paths espoused by Stoic and Epicurean philosophers more or less conceded the world to a predetermined evil, and in different ways concentrated just on telling individuals how to get by in a hellish world. That was kind of the hopelessness into which this epiphany came. It was into that sort of scene of intellectual despair and spiritual hopelessness that the epiphany of Christ came with its message of hope. But the epiphany reminds us that this state of things is not the final word on the world. Like it seems like darkness is persuasive, but that's not the final word, and it's the epiphany that reminds us of that. The epiphany reminds us that there is a powerful unseen reality, which is the actual foundation for living. But today, again, it can seem like, because of the darkness, switching metaphors, it can seem like finding Jesus today is kind of like finding an old classic car, you know, in an old barn, you know, somewhere that's just covered with dust and storage stuff all over the place, and Underneath it is this amazing, you know, classic car. And I think there's a, there's a pattern there. It seems like it's just true of humanity that that which has been revealed usually becomes cluttered by the debris of life. Just this week, I was uh, given notice that the little United Methodist Church that my family grew up in in Santa Ana is being torn down. And, you know, that was a little sad, but that wasn't the reason I got the call. The reason I got the call is that in the courtyard of that church is a plaque in honor of my brother Dennis, who was killed in Vietnam in 1970. And you can perhaps picture those plaques. You know, the, the bronze lettering is set upon a kind of a luxurious brown, kind of luminous brown, and then you, know, you can picture the, the bronze lettering. But imagine what that's like now 48 years later. Imagine all the grass clippings and 
kids riding their skateboards over it or, you know, you just know that that is not what it was. You know, if, if you can remember the late 60s, and this would have been April of 70, our nation was torn over all this, deeply torn. And unless you're my age or older, you can't even remember how deeply torn our nation was over this. But cities noticed when they had fallen men. Colleges would notice, churches would notice. Well, that's what happened in my brother's case, that the church noticed and wanted to remember this man who'd given his life for others and was highly decorated, and et cetera, et cetera. But that is not what it was. It's now tarnished by clippings and endless dust and just all the scars of being in a public place. So don't worry, we'll go get it. And uh, we'll, before they tear, before they raise the building, we'll, we'll go get it and we'll get it cleaned up and, I don't know, give it to my older sister or something. So don't worry, we'll get it. But it, it's just, I think, an image of this just seems to be the human case of things. And I think that something like this has happened to Jesus that the purity of the epiphany is covered in bad religion. It's covered in all kinds of confusing theological truth claims. It's covered in the last generation or so by the church seeking political power in order to, you know, sort of directly control culture, you know, which then led to this, in hindsight, sort of disastrous marriage between religion and partisan politics. It's covered up by disgraced church leaders, and the lying cover-ups that always go with it. So like, I don't know about you, but I have a ton of empathy for people who are like this about Jesus and kind of like this about church and this about God. I have tons of just easy empathy that they, they just can't quite see how to get through the debris in that old barn and should I? Like, should I really care? That seems like a lot of work and how do I know there's actually anything of value underneath that? Like, I, I get that. I think is really real. I saw an article uh, this week in a British publication that I think reveals uh, much of the angst about religion in life today. And ironically, it was about witchcraft, but here's what it said. Uh, first, it, it, it defined witchcraft, I think from what I know rightly, that witchcraft centers on the notion that we live in a universe of chaos, entropy, destruction, death, and decay with a final ending of oblivion. Isn't that beautiful, right? So if like that's your worldview, who's gonna dig through the debris? Like if what really marks life is death and decay that ends in oblivion, well, who's gonna look for anything other than that? So, that it, so in witchcraft, I don't know if you know this, but what they do then in witchcraft, that being the case, in witchcraft, you think that you have to do everything for yourself, that there's no other help in this universe. You're all on your own. And that if you don't get in the driver's seat by controlling life with hexes and spells and curses, then things are just going to get worse. So today, and this is really what the article about, it was you know, one of those sort of you know, alarming articles uh, that, saying that witchcraft is thriving in the U.S. with an estimated 1.5 million Americans now identifying as witches, which you wouldn't, I wouldn't expect you to know that, but that's bigger than many of our denominations. Like we could just start citing denominations right now, and many Christian denominations are smaller than 1.5 million people. So something like this maybe that we heard in the Isaiah reading, that the earth is wrapped in darkness and all people are sunk in deep darkness. There just seems to be this debris. But a part of what helps me go from empathy to 
like a kind of faith or confidence is that at least my personal experience is, is that while most people or many people are suspicious of religion and cynical about church and, and wonder if this isn't all just going to end in oblivion and is there anything under the dust and debris, that most people still say they believe in God. They still just have this hunch that there must be a God. And many people actually admire Jesus and his teachings. They just don't know how to find him under all the mental rubble and confusing debris about Christianity. And then as we heard Jen read, I just love it, but Isaiah was prophesying that the time was coming when it would be possible to wake up and to put your face in the sunlight. Isn't that a lovely phrase? You can put your face in the sunlight. For epiphany has happened. God's bright glory has risen upon you. His sunrise glory breaks over you. So how can this happen in our world today? What are the signs of Jesus' appearing in our world? What are the kinds of things that could make religion, God, Jesus, the church, Christianity, plausible again? That's our first step. I mean, that sort of worldview that is just illustrated by witchcraft, there is no real plausibility there for a good God. So way before we get into details about, you know, Christian doctrine, there's just the issue of plausibility. How, how does this even become plausible again to people that there could be a good God with a good purpose and that the world doesn't end in oblivion, it actually ends in what God intended for it to end in? Or what does it mean to evangelize a previously evangelized culture, one that has decided to turn against religion? So if you're, if, you, if you're wondering, and I'd bet my last dollar, you all, you all do wonder about this from time to time. Why is it so hard to have conversations about spiritual things? Sometimes even in our families, sometimes even with people who are close to us at work. But why does it seem increasingly hard to, to talk about spiritual things? Because, it, this is one reason why, for many people, it's like talking to them about buying a Ford or whatever, I'm not picking on Ford, uh, buying a Ford or a Chevy or something, when they've had three Fords in a row and they were all lemons. And now you're coming along and saying, won't you please consider a Ford? And they're saying, no, I had one and I'll never have one again. That's what's so full in all of the Western world it's certainly full in North America, in Canada, and on our coast. Not quite so much maybe in the middle of the country, but anywhere around our elite universities and big urban centers. The notion is God's just like, I don't know what that is, but like, why would you do that again? And so we often feel like, well, we're in the position of trying to sell Fords to somebody who had three bad Fords, and they're just not going to have another one. And so then we feel awkward, we feel stupid. Why would anybody even try that? We don't know what we would say. What is the plausibility structure for getting someone to try a Ford again when, when it's not plausible in their own mind? Well, here's, here's some, some thoughts. The first one, I think, is just very simple love, just willing the good of another. How would you will that person's good who says, I'm done? See, willing their good is very different than winning an argument. And it's very different than trying to convince somebody of something. It may include that, but it can't be reduced to that. Willing their good 
is something that's first of all an attitude, a motive. It's a place from which we even come to somebody. It's a, it's a place in which they can even sort of feel our presence with them. Now, that may be accompanied by data, but usually best after you've listened a good long while. And then someone says to you, how is it that you Christians believe the Bible has authority? Now, when they're asking that because they want to know, well, good. Now's the time for you to give a little plausibility structure for how it is that we think the Bible's authoritative. But when they're saying, well, your Bible is so stupid, that's, that's maybe just the time to be a presence of love. And then I think always of generosity, of selflessness, and how for virtually everybody, it remains true that, that care for the poor is a great breakthrough for people to think that there is plausibly a God who plausibly has a good people. There's just something about caring for the other, and especially the poor, maybe even especially children, or think of James, of widows, or in our case these days, increasingly the elderly. There's just something about that. that it stops people in their tracks. Because if you think that this really is just a world of chaos and entropy ending in oblivion, and you see something contrary to that that's animated by love, even if they don't fall on their knees and say, okay, I know there's a God, there's something that happens that in a good way stops people in their tracks. I think there's something about personal integrity and something about our own honest pursuit of God. So much, it just happened again this morning in two or three instances, but so I, was, I was sitting in the adult discipleship class this morning thinking how very much I appreciate that how I personally enjoy it, how I will miss it. But part of what I love about it is we're just honest about our own journeys. All of us, me too. And it's so rare to sit in a place where you can talk about your own journey and, and just be honest. There, again, there's something that breaks things down when, when it doesn't feel to people like we're the right ones and we speak condescendingly to them. Something happens when we say no, we're on a journey with you towards God. And I might be um, 44 years into this, and you might be only 44 weeks into it, but that doesn't mean we can't journey together and be real about how we're all journeying towards God and journeying towards increased Christ-likeness. It's really, that kind of vulnerability is very powerful. And then I think there's something about hospitality, and by that I don't mean just having people over for dinner, I mean, us being people of hospitality. Don't suppose I've ever told you this, but virtually every week for years before I've moved from there or there to here, I will say this simple prayer. God, make me a gracious, generous, hospitable, generative presence. Every week. Like, I, I want you to feel hospitality from me here not just a teacher, somebody with good information, but there's something radically important about hospitality in the Bible, of being a person who creates space rather than sex, sucks all the oxygen out of the room. I, that, actually, that, may, that might have been my earliest prayers. Help me to be a spacious person, to like create space for you. See, that, that, right, that feels lovely versus, oh, I know this Christian who sucks all the oxygen out of every conversation and assumes this hierarchical thing over me and speaks condescendingly to me. Do you see how that's radically different than like creating space for that person to be who they are and where they are? 
When I think about that, I often think of something when I have time to go into this morning. It's, um, it's a bit of theory from sociology that talks about being bounded set versus centered set. Bounded set is all about creating boundaries so you can know who's in and who's out. That's very useful if you're, uh, like, that's very useful to partners in politics. It can be very useful to religion, right? So you draw these hard, fast boundaries because the function of the boundary is to show who's in and who's out versus centered set thinking that says, yes, there is a center. And in our case, Christ Jesus, the world's one true creator Lord. But the boundary around him, the function of that boundary is not so much to mark who's in and who's out. The function of that center is to just ask, in which direction are you heading? You might be very far away, but you can walk with somebody who's very close to God if you're heading in that direction. You take on that worldview and it will wreck xenophobia. It will destroy it. You take on that worldview and it will banish judgmentalism because the question no longer becomes who's in and who's out. The question becomes, in what direction are we heading? So even in Jesus's first crowd, you had Judas and John the Beloved, apparently heading in different directions, but that sort of centered, thing, centered set thinking of making Jesus the center of this, not religious or denominational boundaries, it, it just it changes everything. So in terms of the practices of spiritual formation, getting back to where we started, of, of epiphany being for us a, the, a spirit, a, an opportunity for spiritual disciplines, I think the revelation of something, the epiphany of something, then emphasizes the other side of the coin of us cultivating attentiveness, us cultivating the ability to notice, right? As Susan said when we started, you know, she referenced the Magi. Well, they had to seek and look. Or if you think of the revelation of Jesus at the first uh, miracle in Cana, the crowd had to observe. At Jesus' baptism, they had to lend their gaze Jesus' way. So all these epiphany stories, they, they all kind of begin to alert us to the notion that watching for God in the present moments of our ordinary daily lives is core to then revealing him in our own attitudes, our words, and our deeds. So then I think Christ followers embody the season of epiphany by our intention to see what's been revealed, by our attentiveness to what God is revealing to us in our own personal encounters with him in prayer and scripture reading or meditation or other disciplines. Or think of just our own observations of how God might wish to operate through us in divine appointments. Well, like how can you be present to a divine appointment in your life in which God wants to use you in some way if we haven't cultivated the ability to notice him in our lives and our own daily circumstances. And again, we don't have time for this this morning, but to me, that is the spiritual formation connection to the journey outward. You cannot have a journey outward to live your life for the good of others if you can't learn to notice how God might want to use you for the good of that other. So you might have always thought of outwardness and, and mission and all that as being something different than the inner journey. I would just ask you to think that one funds the other and that they are symbiotic. So in this season of Epiphany, as Susan said, it, it goes on, I think, for seven weeks, if I remember, I want to suggest to us that we cultivate these simple practices, these practices of attentiveness, of, of noticing, of being observant to God in us, in our world, and to take them on as something that we know will reform us and how paying attention will lead to caring and caring will lead to simple acts of love and witness, of welcoming, of hospitality, 
and I think have the byproduct of stopping the hectic and taking on this noticing of God, of ourselves and God and others. So as we have a little quiet moment here in this official Sunday of the Epiphany, I want to invite you to, uh, we're going to linger here a bit more than we would maybe normally. So I want to invite you to take everything out of your hands and don't just, I want you to just sit and like literally feel yourself in your chair or your pew and, and just take on a bit of presence here as we can head in this direction this morning with a couple of these practices while we're together. Now first, I want you to just remember your first love. Remember that moment of epiphany in your own life where a breakthrough happened and you knew that God was real and true. Just begin to recall that. What do you think or feel as you remember that moment of conversion? That moment of epiphany in which you were no longer lukewarm or cold, but you were hot for God. In the words of Isaiah, the, that moment where the Spirit enabled you to rise and shine, filled you with joy and thanksgiving. And now maybe in, instead of shame or guilt, Maybe let a smile come to your face as you remember how very far you were from God. A smile come to your heart as you appreciate his grace and love. As you remember his forgiveness. The assurance of salvation you felt in that moment. And began now to, to recognize how much the Spirit has enabled change in you. Just think about how much you've grown, how much better you understand God and his purpose and work in the world. And lastly, I just invite you to become thankful for the meaning that you find in your everyday ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, getting up, going to work, walking around life. I'm thankful for the meaning that you're increasingly finding in that, in loving and serving God and others. All this has its root in the epiphany.